Welcome back to the Wordsmith Podcast, another week in the Word. We're excited today is our last episode of Season 1. We do have some bonus content coming out that you guys will hear more about, along with Worship Pastor Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. And then we've got Pastor Shane Suggs, your boy. And then Youth Director Connor Hawk. What's going on? And I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor here at Awaken Church. We're excited to continue on. And we are going to kick off today by talking about some TV shows. I don't know about you guys, but I um, have kind of missed out on some of my TV shows. COVID has thrown in a little wrench with people being able to record and kind of slowed down some production stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, for us, one of our favorite shows that we watch faithfully every year is Survivor. And they weren't able to do Survivor this season, um, which I think is coming back next season maybe. But it's um, been a little bit in disarray. We, we, I don't know. We, we've always been a big reality TV fan. What about you guys? Well, what constitutes no, – I just want to see if we can come to an agreement. What constitutes binge watching? How many episodes do you actually have to watch of something before you say, I binge watch that? Ooh. Like over a time period? No, I mean, well, binge watch, it has to be in one day, right? Correct? Yeah. I think there's what you're watching. If you're watching something with nine seasons, obviously you're not going to break that down into yeah. one day. But No, but I'm saying like – would it like if I had to watch three episodes of this sure. season in one day? Is that binge watching or is I, to me that's the min- minimum, yeah, a bare minimum? About to say yeah. that. I mean, I remember three episodes. First show I ever binged watched was Alias. I watched season one in one day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Twenty two episodes, full season. <laughs> well, the the shows that Jamie and I have binge watched, like we're done, like Longmire. We did. We kind of binge watched that mm-hmm. one and the Blacklist, which the Blacklist ended. If if you're a blacklist fan it kind of ended weird this season because of covid they couldn't quit no no spoiler alert yeah they they just couldn't finish filming and so they had to kind of improvise you know Mm -hmm. and so it was interesting to say the least but like now we after those are over we don't normally binge watch shows we'll watch one or two episodes of you know something in the evening or yeah we really haven't found another show to really get into but like the the show i watch all the time just to pass the time is seinfeld like i bet i watched every episode of it at least a couple of times so would it be accurate to say that seinfeld is a comfort show oh yeah absolutely like i i I like to just watch it and just have it on on the tv and it it's not one of those where you have to like if you if you've ever watched seinfeld you don't really have to follow any kind of plot sure even for a sitcom i mean there's there's really nothing there so I, I love it. Yeah, when I still had basic cable, TBS has had the rights to Seinfeld for all these years yeah. or whatever. And if, if there's nothing else to watch, I would just turn to TBS and, you know, eight out of ten times a day they're showing Seinfeld or yeah. what have you. New Girl. New Girl okay. is my comfort show. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I was like, there's been a show I've been watching over uh, quarantine. It was New Girl. Mm-hmm. And that show is so funny. Yeah, very funny. I love yeah. I love it. It would be the office for us. I mean, if we're mm-hmm. just vegging out, yeah. wanting to – Put something on that's no brainer. We do the office. I used to love Duck Dynasty. It, it was actually my favorite show to fall asleep to. Yeah. I've always fell asleep to TV. I just kind of grew up that way. And so I love Duck Dynasty because I could roll over and close my eyes and I could picture what was happening because I had watched it so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. But now I actually have a hard time finding the episode. YouTube TV doesn't really have Yeah, because the, mm-hmm. the network actually owned the term Duck Dynasty. And so, like any merchandise that was sold that said Duck Dynasty, all that was corporate stuff. But uh, whatever the name of their um, company is, like you could buy that stuff, and that was actually owned by the Robertsons. So, like it was real weird the way they had everything divided up as far as like merchandise and reruns for the show. 
anything that said Duck Dynasty, I think, was corporate, and anything mm-hmm. that said uh, Duck, Duck, Duck Commander. Commander was owned by the family, so they owned the trade trademark to that term. Huh. Yeah, my comfort show would be The West Wing. I've probably seen it. I don't actually watch it in its entirety. If you follow the show, they, the original creator and producer of the show and writer of most of the episodes, I think all episodes, there were two of them in the first four seasons, he left after the end of the fourth season. And the fifth season's really, really bad. And then the sixth and seventh season are better, but I, just, I have trouble getting through that fifth season. So I just watch those first four seasons over and over and over again. And because of the way of the style of the writing of the show, it's so dense that you actually forget things, even though you've seen it about four or five times. Uh, so that's my comfort show. And then the binging or no binging. When I was younger, I used to binge more. The older I get, the harder I find it to binge, which is probably a good thing, because I don't yeah. think spending significant amount of times in front of a TV is a good idea. But the very first show I ever binged was Lost. Oh, wow. Um, I, That's a good show. I was late on that train. I got into it. Never a, saw one episode. Into the second season of Lost. So somebody had bought the DVDs the first season. I got it. And it wasn't quite a day. It was a day and a half for me to watch the first season, season one. of Lost. Wow. wow. And then I watched every episode as it premiered up until like my second year in college. Yeah, I was going to say, I painstakingly watched yeah. every episode from the very first one week by week and that was a painful show to wait week to week yeah. to watch. You know what you said about the like somebody different coming in and producing a show and like mm-hmm. the quality kind of fell off. It it's amazing how many people can tell like when especially the writers of a show. Yeah. You could tell like there's been two or three shows that I watched and I'm like, man, between this season and this season it just really fell off and then you kinda of go researching like did did another network or something buy it or you know, what happened? And generally speaking, a lot of times when the quality falls off, they got a they got different writers. Maybe the writers quit or they went to another mm-hmm. show or something mm-hmm. like that. And you're like, okay, so you can really like, and but the average person, you don't know what's changed, but you know something significant has changed. And generally speaking, it's it's the writers that change on shows, and it, the, and sometimes it may work in reverse. Usually, in my experience, it's it, the show kind of fell off. Like it just got different yeah. writers. The writers yeah. weren't as good, and it maybe it's because they have they weren't involved in the storyline up until that point. They didn't understand the real character development that took place. Right? Maybe. Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. But it's really cool the way you can you can most people can tell when that sort of thing happens, even if we can't put our finger on it. Yeah, and the longer a show runs, the more cartoonish characters eventually come over time the walking dead look at the yes. off watch the office the first two seasons and then compare it to like season six and season like eight and nine or whatever the characters were before they had they were sort of rigid they had an idea dwight's kind of a loser who also likes metal but then by the end of the show he's like a, a cartoonish character and he's acting ways that he wouldn't normally act and just because they just run out of things for him to do and that's true uh the big bang theory is another example of that very rigid very nerdy characters over time more and more cartoonish things happen and they just you run out of stuff to do character of of their former shows run its course you you mentioned the walking dead Dead. i mean i loved that show but they lost me um what season season two when they're at the prison really early it got so boring i was there to at least season nine negan when all the Negan stuff yeah. happened. That's when they lost me. I made it through one of those seasons, but I never made it. I made through it through the, big the first Civil season. Stuff. Yeah, I made it through the first mm-hmm. season. When but, and it was and like, I mean, the most interesting the show ever got was like that scene where they're all on their knees and he's got the bat with the bob wire when yeah. you first meet Negan. But then from then on, it just it lost me. Yeah, they, y'all like the season it, yeah. with the prison and stuff. They, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's yeah. too slow. Uh, well, the thing is, 
the I, what I think The Walking Dead did really well early on is they did very well at character development. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, and they would yeah. even spend whole episodes, even though it felt like it moved slower, they would spend whole episodes developing a particular character. And, of course, that character... And here's a, the weird thing about that show is that you would think they would spend a whole episode developing a character that's going to be around for a while so that you can buy into it. No, he might be dead the next episode. Or by the end of that episode. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you did, you said you did, haven't watched Lost, right? No, I haven't they watched that one episode. They did as good of a job as anybody at really? that character development. Oh, that's yeah. a good show. Yeah, yeah. I, you could actually... I was listening to a podcast just a couple of weeks ago. You can make the argument when loss comes, the way people, the way companies and uh, writers and producers approach TV significantly changed. Everybody remembers like the gags and the smoke monster and all the weird stuff, the lost. But if you go back and watch the episodes, every episode deals with a character. Can this person change? Can you become someone new? Can you leave behind your past and embrace a new life? That's what the whole show really is kind of about. And again and again, they do it slowly over time. Love the loss. Could, you, did you, could keep talking so, about loss for another hour. Yeah, so. we'll, we'll dive out of this in just a second. But I got one question. Did you know the original plan was to kill Jack in episode one? Yes. Oh, just ruin it for me. I was going to go did. watch it. <laughs> they no, didn't kill him. But he, they didn't kill him. He, he's the showrunner. I mean, he's the yeah, main character. Yeah. But they wanted to kill him in the first episode to say, yeah. look, we'll do anything. Well, that's like so Daryl in expect The Walking the Dead. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he wasn't supposed to make it like two seasons. The right. pilot yeah. for Lost cost ten million dollars, which wow. is a ludicrous wow. amount of money for typically Man, a pilot. Like that is going to go back and watch. It's a very good episode. We have a really nice box set with yeah. Lost that has wow. like a Lost Atlas and stuff, or, oh, really? not Atlas, um, encyclopedia and stuff. As, as a staff and as a church, since we're doing talking about this on a podcast, we should all rewatch Lost. Lost. I know. I think if I went home and told my wife tonight we're going to rewatch Lost, I think she would be game because we loved that show. <laughs> it's a great show. Great. We're going to be finishing up the Book of Philippians today. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Pastor Matt, could you read those verses for us? Yes, sir. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, because once again you renew your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry. Whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you do well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send your greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here we find ourselves at the end of the book of Philippians. And we resort back to some of the same thoughts that we mentioned in the first couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one of the things that we really kind of dove into, I think, in week one, maybe week two, is that this was almost like a thank you letter from Paul where he's thanking the Philippians for his generosity, and then he gets back to this. And in fact, if you really look at the themes of the second part of Philippians chapter four, it's generosity and contentment. The generosity of the Philippians and the contentment of Paul. And so he starts off here in verse 10 by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. 
And so Paul dives into this idea that the generosity of the Philippians caused him to rejoice greatly. And it really just got me to thinking about how our generosity affects other people mm-hmm. and what it does in the lives of other people. And here we see clearly that in, in Philippi here, their generosity caused him not just to rejoice, but to rejoice greatly. I think the the generosity of the church, the church in Philippi, that for, for Paul was that he was able to do what he was able to do for the sake of the gospel because of their generosity because if you have if he had to spend all his time worrying about well how because i mean he has needs and so he's like well how am i going to supply this need how am i going to supply that need that detracts from your mission so if you're not having to worry about that as much it, it would it would enable you to focus more on what god has put in front of you and so i think their generosity affected him personally, you know, in that way uh, to such a degree. I mean, especially if they were the only ones, at least at some point, they were the only ones doing that. They stood out even more. And and I think true generosity always stands out, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. He says, uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. He's talking about the gift from the church there at Philippi. And it reminds me of something. It's really easy to say you and I care about somebody or care about something, and then it's not really proved by our actions. It's just like, oh, I care about you and the fact that I feel for you, but I don't actually change how I live or what I'm doing for you. Whereas the nature of generosity is you prove what you care about by who or what you're generous with. Hmm. I thought of, and this is a silly example, but we already mentioned The Office. So in The Office, there's a a Christmas episode, the very first one in the second season. Uh, Michael Scott, who, if you haven't seen the show, is a lovable idiot. (laughs) Michael Scott's talking about uh, gifts. And he says, one of the great things about a gift is it's a tangible way to show somebody, I care about you this many dollars. And we laugh because that's a really stupid thing to say. But there, there's a degree, and I want to be clear, degree. There's a degree of truth about that. If you care about somebody, it's going to change how you act towards them. It's going to change how you're generous with them. It's going to change how you live and be with them. So no, we don't need to attach an actual like dollar amount to our <laughs> I care about you this much, $100 worth, $200 worth. That's going too far. But if you care about somebody or if you care about some mission or some idea, how you are generous with it, how you give to that individual or group or people is inherently going to reflect whether or not you actually care about them. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times generosity and influence go hand in hand. When you think about the people that's had the greatest influence on your life, there are usually people who have shown a great deal of generosity yes. to you, whether it's financially or in time and energy. You know, they have been the most open with you to share what they have. And uh, I know that's certainly been true of me in, in my life. Paul says, I don't necessarily speak this out of need. And he goes into one of these just gems out of the book of Philippians where he's dealing with contentment. I remember Pastor Matt saying back in week one, he wasn't yeah. necessarily looking forward to talking about contentment. It's a difficult passage. Yeah. It is a difficult passage. But it's also an exciting passage for me because he really gets into the heart of his mindset and how he was able to rejoice through difficult times. So before we actually get into his discourse here on contentment, how does generosity produce contentment? Well, I think to a degree, when you are generous with others, inherently you have to give something up. And when you do that again and again, it kind of forces you to realize, you know, I don't need as much as I tend to think I do. I don't I don't need to hold on to these things. I don't need to hold on to this money. So it, when you and I are, are committed to being generous, it helps us to a degree uh, to live on less, to live with less and trust more 
in how God is going to provide for us. I think, and again, this is just kind of generally speaking, but when you observe people, and these are people like, man, that they do things that inspire us. You know, somebody's like, you know, generous and like they don't they don't give from their wealth; they give from their poverty. That is like like if I had a million dollars and you know I was generous and gave somebody five thousand dollars, that wouldn't really inspire anybody because I'm I'm giving out of my wealth. But if I if all I had let's say was six thousand dollars and I gave somebody mm-hmm. five thousand dollars. People, people are inspired by that because you're given, you know, you're given out of your your poverty. You don't give it because you have to give it. You give it because you see a need um, mm-hmm. to give it. So I think there's a there's something about true generosity that that I mean, you can't always put your finger on it, but you feel the inspiration from it. And Paul specifically deals with that manner and these Macedonians. When he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he said they gave out of their great poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they gave what they didn't have. And we see Christ honors that when the woman gave the two mites. I mean, it was all she had to give. I, I'm the same way. I, I can see like ex-athlete, whoever, gives $100,000 for this cause. And I'm sitting there going, he makes $34 million a year. Couldn't he yeah. gave a half a million dollars, you know, yeah. or whatever. But if I if I found out Shane gave $100,000 to something, I would be blown away. Sure, yeah. You know? It's, yeah, here's the thing. Like, like Again, true generosity, I think it's... It makes much more of an impression, not only on the people that you're doing it for, because here's here's what you'll see around Christmas time. I saw this last year. Celebrity will go in and pay off everybody's. I saw it like two or three times, mm-hmm. I, not all the time. I correct myself, but they they would go in and pay off like everybody's layaway or just buy a yeah. lot of people Christmas gifts. But then they get filmed doing it. I was like, you're kind of doing it for, it feels like a yeah. photo op more than it does. You're really trying sure. to be self-gain. I mean, we could call that generosity, but it's really not the nature of tr- true generosity. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I think real generosity, I think it's it's very memorable, not only to those that you're being generous to, but also to those, because it doesn't just affect one person. You know, nothing we do really affects just like, one person it's going to affect people that they're involved with you know right well and the question at its core the opposite of contentment is coveting it's wanting 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 and it's hard to want 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 when you're giving 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 and it it takes an intentional effort and you know i we all can have a tendency to be selfish and to focus on what we want and what we need or and uh, i was actually speaking at legacy village this week and i said you know for me when i notice that rear up in my life the way that I counter that is by taking of active generosity mm-hmm. because it kind of resets that for me and it produces a sense of contentment. We'll move on here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 is one of those verses that if you were to say, what's the top 10 verses in the Bible that have been made into a T-shirt, maybe oh, yeah. even top five, yeah. is um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Didn't uh, Tebow can, wear that one a few times? Oh, I'm sure. sure. You know, yeah. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My favorite is they do it. Um, remember, what's the guys, that the muscle guys, the power, power team. team? Yeah. You know, it's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and rip yep. a phone book in half. I've never and, seen that. Oh, man, you, that's because you're not a child of the 80s and 90s. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it gets this, this, con, this context of, or out of context, this thought of it's almost like this superhuman ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we have to look at the context here. So what is the context for which Paul is talking? He says, not that I speak out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. 
In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether I am well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So what is Paul getting at here in this often quoted, out-of-context Bible verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Well, one observation that I've always had whenever I, I hear people quote this verse, they're usually quoting it looking towards the future. Maybe they've got a test coming up. Hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The big game's coming up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Paul's looking back on the past. Paul's yeah. looking back and saying, hey, I can see that in, in everything in my life, he's not he's not doing it to conquer some task in the future. He's looking back on God's provisions. And, and I'm not saying people who, who do that are, are, are using it incorrectly necessarily, but I, I do see at least that difference. Like we're always looking at something in the future where Paul was it. Paul was looking at something in the past. He's saying, hey, when I was poor, God provided. When I had the money, God provided. You know, I, I could see that I could look back now and see how faithful my God is. When I read this verse, uh, I think a lot of people um, fall into that trap of, oh, I'm going to get superhuman strength. Uh, I could do all I things. I could score four touchdowns in the first quarter. Four, yeah. I'm going to win the Heisman and do all this stuff. But, you know, what Shane said, you know, Paul was, you know, content. And he knew that he can get through this, what he was going through, because God was strengthening him through the midst sure. of it. I think sometimes, I, I do this myself, I take that verse out of context sometimes, mm -hmm. especially when I'm like at Hobby Lobby or I see him written on stuff and everything like that. I think just getting to the root of that, you know, we can remember that we can call out, you know, to Christ and ask for strength during those times. Yeah. And I think that Paul did that in the midst of his trials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Paul is speaking out of, it, he's, he's saying whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. He's saying regardless of my present circumstances, mm -hmm. regardless of if I score four touchdowns later <laughs> in the game, uh, I have the secret, mm -hmm. and that is for whatever happens to me, God is going to strengthen me and get me through this. Mm -hmm. he, yeah. This is an expression of confidence in what God is going to do. It's not necessarily that what I think is best is going to come out of this. Right. It's just regardless of what comes God is going to get me through this. Uh, and I think that really is kind of the secret of contentment. Sometimes parents, right, a kid will be complaining about whether they have something or they don't have something, right? What parents will complain like, oh, back in my day, we didn't have these sort of things. Or uh, be thankful for what you have. Or uh, what the go-to one for my parents was, it could be worse, right? <laughs> and that's that advice is easy, and I don't want to beat up on parents too much because I, I – Although I'm not a parent, I've surely used those excuses once or twice. But the problem with those excuses is that they're still focused on having something or not having something. Whereas it's not confidence in God, it's confidence in that you have these things or you will have these things. Whereas as Paul is talking about, regardless of what comes, regardless of how much lack I have to deal with or how much plentiness I have to deal with, I know that God is going to strengthen me and help me to get through this, which is different from, we think of contentment in terms of only just getting something that we need. But one of the lies of contentment is you get that thing you desperately want and you, you're convinced you need, you don't actually need it. And then end up in a yard sale a month yeah, later. Yeah, it, a lot of these things end up being yeah. white elephants, right? You remember white elephants used to be yeah. gifts. India yeah. used to give uh, to other nations, and then they would try to take this white elephant home because it was beautiful. And it would almost always die on the way there or die as soon as they got back. It was a gift that was more of a burden than an actual gift. Mm. And it, 
for most of the time that you and I spend coveting other things, if we got what we actually wanted in that circumstance, it would probably be more of a burden than we really realized. It actually wouldn't make us happy because the only thing that's going to make us happy in the long run is God in all of his fullness. Yeah. It seems like whenever we read that, and, and uh, again, I'm, a lot of times we, we do use and take verses out of context. Sure. Um, Paul's faith was in God and God alone. There's, there's no doubt about it when you read it. But I think many times when people use this, it's more they have faith in their faith. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is they, they have faith in the outcome that they want, and God is a means to produce that outcome. And so we'll quote this because there's a certain outcome we want, but our faith isn't in God like, yeah. like uh, good or bad. It's, not, it's, it's faith in our faith, faith in the outcome. And yeah. real faith is saying, I have faith whatever outcome God chooses. Yeah. Right. Whatever he sees fit, that's what true faith is. Yeah, it's almost we're being more optimistic than we're being faithful. And optimistic right. is not necessarily isn't inherently a bad thing, but it's right. a very much different than trusting in God, regardless of what and comes down. To let's fight. be honest; it makes great T-shirts. It does. <laughs> it does. Sold a lot of them. But yeah. you know, I've always read it almost like I can handle all things. Yeah. Through Christ, and how true do we find that? You know, you look at somebody that go through something, and how many times have you said or heard people say, "I don't think I can handle that." Yeah. Or I don't think I could go through that. I don't. Mm. But the truth is, in our lives, when we look back and evaluate different situations and different things, God gives us just enough and strengthens us just enough to help us through the circumstances and the situations that we deal with. And so we can handle having a little or a lot um, or being well-fed or being hungry or grieving or not grieving because Christ does comfort us and strengthen us mm-hmm. and walk with us through these different situations, good and bad. And I also want to say something about this. Now, I've struggled a great deal with contentment. It's probably not my biggest area of struggle, but it's certainly up there, I think. I also think there's something to be said about this. A lot of times at Awaken, we talk about the idea of full-bodied faith, right? That what you believe, just simply a matter of the heart or the mind, it's going to be worked out through your body. Your actions ultimately prove what you believe in or what have right. you. Likewise, I think if you and I are struggling with contentment, one of the lies we can kind of fall into is we think of contentment the same way like Buddhists think of contentment. So you can imagine like a Buddhist monk sitting there meditating with his legs crossed and his arms out going, um, or whatever. And, and Buddhists kind of talk about contentment as the idea as you don't want or desire anything. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Sure. Paul is not saying you need to be emptied of all wants and desires. It's that you need to trust in God to ultimately provide those things for you. Because if, if he's saying that you don't need to want or desire anything— then it's conflicting with all the rest of his letters. And even earlier in the book, right, he talks about the idea he wants, on the one hand, he wants he longs to be with the Lord. On the other hand, he longs to be with the Philippians. He's saying he's longing. There's two desires. They're conflicting there. So Paul's not saying contentment is the absence of desire, the absence of want. It's just finding what do you ultimately want and knowing and trusting that ultimately that is God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great conversation. We're going to be back in just a second as we deep dive into a topic we all love to talk about. We are back for our deep dive into the topic that we love to talk about and really stemming off what we were just talking about, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, a verse that is taken out of context. 
So today for our deep dive, we're going to be talking about biblical interpretation practices. So we run across something like this, a verse we go, hey, this verse is taken out of context a lot. So I thought it would be helpful for our listeners for us to talk about how to actually take verses in their context and to chirp, to properly interpret the Bible and to understand what it's saying and what it means. So just kind of getting started, what are some of your thoughts on biblical interpretation practices? The worst thing, and I guess I'm the negative one, so the worst thing I think that you can do whenever you are trying to interpret a passage is to start out with the thought, what does this verse mean to me? Because it really doesn't matter. You wouldn't even thought about whenever they were <laughs> writing that verse. It doesn't really have any. Now, that's a question. That's not a question you, you just uh, don't ever ask. You ask that question when you get to the to the step in the process that's of how do I live it out or, you know, how do I apply this So it's verse? actually a different question. The question isn't what does it mean to me. It's how does this verse apply to me? Right. Like, mm-hmm. like you got to figure out the mean. Uh, the meaning of the verse, and uh, generally speaking, it's what did the author mean to his original audience? How would they have interpreted it? How would they have read it? And then, now you're, you're probably not going to apply verses the same way as a first century Jewish man or woman. Uh, you're probably going to apply it a lot different, but I think you would still apply it in the general context of the interpretation of it, but that's that's a bad way to interpret what a verse actually means is to bring it into 2020 and then interpret it. You got to interpret it when it was written, by whom it was written, to whom it was written, and then the application you can transport to 2020. Is that how I see it? I mean, maybe you guys have a little yeah, different take I, on it, but whenever I read new like into a new scripture and stuff or if I'm studying something new, I like to do like a background, like go like see why the, why, when, there was, when this was written, you know, why it was written, stuff like that. And I, I use a app, and I've talked about it before, Blue Letter Bible app. David Guzik's on there. And it really just breaks down the scripture on what who who's writing it and what is he writing about. And I used to fall in that trap of what is this saying, you know, what is this saying sure, to me? Yeah. Sure. But, and turn that around and saying, you know, how can this, you know, how can this, you know, I'm going to try to say, not if. Not, not affect others. How can I, I guess, use this to, I guess, share the gospel? Context is kink. I mean, yeah. understanding who said it, what were the circumstances in which they said it, who did they say it to, what are the circumstances those people live in. Like, you cannot begin to understand what a verse says unless you start understanding the context around it. What else has been said? So if you sure. pull verse 13 out of chapter 4 and you don't read the book of Philippians... Mm-hmm then you're never going to fully understand what that verse means. Even if you read the few verses before or after, you have a deeper understanding. But until you read the whole book, then you don't have as much of an understanding. Until you understand that Paul was in prison. Until you understand that the Philippians gave money out of their poverty. You know, all of those things add deeper meaning. But, you know, piggybacking off what Shane said, and this is something that was kind of driven to home to us in biblical interpretation in college, the Bible can only mean one thing, what it has meant, what it always meant. So if you run across a verse... It doesn't all of a sudden mean something new. Mm-hmm. Right. It means what it's always meant. Now, it can be applied in many different right, ways. Sure. But before we can apply it, we got to know what it means. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the big things that you get into is isogesis versus exogesis. So any of you guys want to dive into the definition of isogesis versus exogesis? So isogesis would be you are already trying to figure out what is this saying to me? 
right? Whereas exegesis is, what does this actually say? Right. First, it's not what is my personal thought on it. How am I? Uh, eisegesis begins with you, whereas exegesis right. actually begins with the passage. What is the passage trying to say? What is the author trying to say? Yeah. So eisegesis is a reading into. Mm-hmm. So you're taking your ideas to the text, and like you said, exegesis is exegeting it out, taking the text, what it's saying out towards you. And you know, we all believe in exegetical preaching, which basically means I don't find some random verse somewhere. And just preach on that. Like I try to, you, we try to preach the context of that and a verse in its passage. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've all heard, we've all seen verses that are taken out of context, and they're they're done well intentioned. I don't think people go and let me let me take this verse out of context. Let me twist the word of God. It's more times just done out of laziness. Yeah. We just find a verse sure. and we don't do the work to understand what it means or what the context is. Or, you know, for this example, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We never take the time to find the lesson of contentment that's actually all around in the verses before and after that passage. Yeah, it would be very similar to like in uh, what's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I think that's yeah. a, everybody's kind of life verse, you know, where, where God says, I have plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. Man, they're like, man, this is great. This is... I think he was speaking to that particular group of people because if you'll back up just a few verses, the bondage they were in, God said, I'm putting you in that bondage. So, I mean, you can't have both of them. That's that's an example of taking that one verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. You take it out of the... the, And just for all of our listeners, it's really bad practice to read one or two verses whenever you're reading pretty much anything. Now, there are some types of Scripture that you can read fewer, like maybe Proverbs or something, yeah. you know, you can kind of gain something or or the Psalms. But but generally speaking, whenever you read narratives, you need to read the entire narrative at, at the very minimum. Um, because when you read just 2911, Jeremiah 2911, you're like, man, God just wants everything to go my way and everything to be good. And that's what we can really gather from that verse. But what God is saying is like, look, I'm putting you in this bondage, but there's going to be a day I'm going to bring you out of this bondage. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's what he's getting across. And I think, and people disagree, but I think he was he was meaning it for that particular group of people. He's not mm-hmm. saying like, "Hey, everybody, I'm putting in bondage," and you know, I'm one. Of them. I think he was he was speaking sure. to them. Now we can apply that, and we can we can bring some things out of that. But but as far as the interpretation, it can't it just can't mean something different than that. Yeah, one of the sad things about that is I think that passage is actually quite beautiful when it's understood in context. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. it's also encouraging them to seek the welfare of the city. To look the, Basically, it's an Old Testament version of love your neighbor, essentially, what have you. So there's there's a lot to bring out of that passage when you understand it in context. Yeah. So it's a disservice to it when you bring it out and you just focus on that one verse, for I know yeah. the plans I have for you. It's really It's a disservice to the text, and in the long run, it actually does more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of it stems out of making the Bible about us instead of sure. allowing the Bible to be about Jesus yeah. and about his plan. And we have a part in that, but it's not about us. We're not the, the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's very, when we take all these little verses and we make you know, wall and, art and T-shirts and all and these one things. And one that, of my pet peeves is this, and I just want to get on my chest. Um, <laughs> clearly. But— one, one of the, like if we make the Bible because you just said that so if we make the Bible about us 
then whenever we read the story of David and Goliath, it's about how God's going to help me overthrow my giants in my yeah. life, which is not at all what the text is about. Yeah. Yeah. It couldn't be further from that because that makes David the hero of the story, not God. Right. And so, you know, whenever we whenever we put man at the center, we come across uh, all kinds of faulty doctrine um, whenever we do yeah. that. Well, okay, I think I've Pastor Matt said before in a message here, we're more relatable to the Philistines than yeah. we are to David in that yeah, story. Absolutely. Yeah. Be- absolutely. A best case scenario, we are either the Israelites who are all cowering in fear, yes. or worst case scenario, we're the Philistines who are actually working against the kingdom of God in that <laughs> yes. scenario. And, yeah. and the th- other thing about that is, if you make Jesus the focus of that passage, which you should and with every passage, that's, that's the gospel. That's good news. Yes. God has delivered you. It's not on your back. <laughs> It's not about you defeating your giants. He has defeated your giants, yeah. and you get to enjoy that victory. And only yeah. if the Bible had told us many times that David was a picture of Jesus. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and uh, if you're a listener and you don't know a lot of Bible context there, the Bible makes it very clear that David is a picture of yes. Jesus yes. and um, you know, I, actually in the lineage and all those things as well. So when we actually dive into studying the Bible in its entirety, it has so much more richness and you know pastor matt talked about that one verse out of jeremiah but when we the bible is beautiful and it is impactful and it is meaningful it doesn't need us to make it more meaningful right. it doesn't make need us to make it more beautiful it's our job to discover what it actually says do you guys have any resources you would recommend um for people that are looking to maybe dive into biblical interpretation a little more uh not well not necessarily a a particular book. I mean, I've got a few, but one topic I I think is very interesting. I think helps a lot of people and you can get these types of books on any, you can get entry level, you can get on the academic level, but books on apologetics, um, the, the, the study of apologetics, which basically means defending your faith. And so, and and there's all kinds, you can get them for teenagers, you can get them for adults, you can get them, uh, you know, on the, on the level of like, um, ac- academics and you know being a college professor or something like that but I always recommend that to people I bought books like that like uh, Sean McDowell yeah Sean McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict is one that kind of sticks out yeah as a resource yeah for me if you're if you're really just the listener going I want to know how to study the Bible better I cannot more recommend to you Rick Warren's 12 Bible study methods mm-hmm. um, he goes through 12 different ways to study the Bible and always, to help you get to the meaning and then draw out application. Um, even if you just pick that book up and read chapter one and two, it has been well worth your time and investment. And I'll say it again, Rick Warren's 12 Bible study methods. Yeah, a quick, easy book for me would be Church with Jesus as the Hero. It's written by David E. Prince. At the back of the book says, the goal of this simple book is to help Christians gain a Jesus-centered, gospel-focused mentality while reading and applying the scripture and living together in the community of the church. Just a real easy, quick little book, kind of introduction to how do we understand reading passages in light of Jesus and in light of his message. And that will be our deep dive for this week. We highly encourage you as your pastors to dive more into biblical interpretation because the more you understand how to study the Bible, the more you're going to get out of the Bible and the more it's going to impact your life. We'll be back in just a few seconds.
Okay, we are back to bring home the last segment of season one of the Wordsmith podcast. And here Paul moves on and he says, Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. And verse 17 to me really gets at the heart of why we teach generosity and giving um, here at Awaken Church and why all churches do. He said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. And so Paul says, I don't teach you and, and share with you and encourage you and, and thank you for your generosity because I, I want something. He said, I teach you and model and share generosity and all these things for you because I know what generosity does in you. And generosity in you does um, a lot of great things. And most importantly, it makes us more God-like. And so even as, as we think about teaching generosity and giving and things here, it's not that we are teaching it because we want something from people. We teach it because we want something for people. What's your thoughts on that? We could, Some people can almost be legalistic about giving, right? And I've seen them try to shame people who aren't giving what they're giving. and But even they're giving with the wrong spirit because they what they're doing, and, and everybody doesn't do this. This is just some of my experience, okay? But what I find that some people do is they treat their their generosity or their even their tithe to the church, they treat it as another bill. Mm. Um, hey, I, I got I to gotta pay my tithe this week just like I got to pay my light bill. And, and when we do that, we cheapen what the tithe, what, what, what generosity really is. And generosity really is a part of your worship. And so whenever we cheapen generosity, we're, we're cheapening our worship. Um, I don't, and, and see, I, I, and I say that cause I used to be like that. I just treated, you know, my giving to the church. I treated it just like it was another bill. You know, I, I don't know where, when it actually changed. It was poor, more of a gradual change. Maybe as I began to learn more about um, generosity and giving, that uh, uh, my mindset kind of said, like, this really is part of my worship. But when I give, you know, when I pay my electric bill or my house, that's that's not worship. If I treat it that, I'm bringing it down a level instead of lifting it up where it ought to be. There's a really smart guy who many, many years ago said it's better to give than receive. <laughs> I know that's a, a simplistic answer, but it's, it's the truth. It is better to give than receive. It, it, and I think we talked about this several podcast episodes ago. It's when you're generous, you tend to get a high from that. You tend to get a good feeling from that. And you think, oh, man, this is great. Why don't I do this more? And then you don't go back to do it more because it, by our natures, we're more covetous. We're more selfish. We're more worried about what we've got going on. So having the habit of giving regularly, I think, is a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have a set amount that you give you don't want to make it rote like what Pastor Shane was just talking about. You don't want it just to be another bill. But we're not suggesting that you need to avoid having a specific percentage or whatever sure. that you give on a regular basis. It, it's it, We're not pushing extremes. We're just saying from time to time we need to remember it isn't just another bill. And, and, and one of the things that I do just personally, every month I try to find some other I, – I give a, a set amount here at church – and then I find some other organization or group or way that I can be generous. Yeah. yeah. 
and and they, I kind of choose a different thing each month or whatever, and that helps me a little bit. Yeah, I know my mom, my mom and papa, they both gave differently. Like my my papa worked at the cotton mill, got mm-hmm. the same paycheck every week. So I mean, his giving was the same every week because yeah. they they for some reason for a while they gave separately for, it, but it came from the same checking account, which was totally weird to me as a kid. But my mama was a beautician growing up, and so. She never knew how much she was going to yeah. make week to week. I mean, it was different every week. So what she did is just kind of figured up, hey, this this is what I, I feel like I, I, I ought to give, you know, as, as part of my worship. And she gave the same amount every week. And, and she didn't base it necessarily on the income from that week because that fluctuated so much. But she's like, man, I I don't want my giving to, to fluctuate, my generosity to fluctuate that much. So she just kind of set it in mind. I don't think there's a, a like a wrong way you know, necessarily to, sure. to do it. Um, but that, that was just two, my two experiences of them. And then eventually they, they just kind of gave from, you know, both of them, like figured yeah. out how much both of them made over so much time or whatever. I don't know how exactly the conversations they had because, uh, you know, I wasn't in on those, but I do know they used to give separate. Then they started giving together, I think. So, you know, when I started following Jesus, you know, really developing a relationship, um, I wasn't tithing and I, Ever since I was 14 years old, I've always had a job, you know, making some money, you know, and um, even the one that lasted one day. <laughs> yes, but I did not get paid there. So you didn't make money there. Right? <laughs> did not get paid. Um, but you know, I was just always, you know, I've always been blessed as a kid, you know, always, and I feel like the Lord's really blessed me with a great family and people around me, and you know, I've always, you know, I've never was had this tendency until I've gotten a little bit older and you know, getting a bigger paycheck and stuff and. You know, my hobbies are getting different and stuff. And I'm, you know, I get in that mindset, oh, I, I want this. Oh, I, I need this, this, and that. And in all reality, I don't need it. And I felt like the Lord was really working in my heart and saying, what are you giving? And I just started. And I just started giving. And, and there was a point where, and I and I had to have a heart, you know, a heart check. It was like, oh, man, you just gave $20. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have gave that much. And that sounds terrible to say, but that's what I said. Everybody has held that thought before. I know. Mind, anybody <laughs> I've, who I've had that in my mind. I was like, that's terrible. I thought by saying that. Mm-hmm. And so, but then I was like, no, this is, this is for the, you know, this is for, it's being generous. And, and so that's just a constant reminder, you know, giving back because, you know, what Jesus did for us on the cross. Easiest tithe check I ever wrote was about $8 and 30 something cents. It was the first check I ever got. You know, I, I don't think. I'm trying to remember back. I don't, I don't want to be dishonest, but I don't remember ever not tithing because I did. I just started when I was, you yeah, know, 14, 15 right. years old. Um, and I didn't do it then because of the right reason. I just did it because I thought I was supposed to. And Paul yeah. makes it clear we don't do it out of obligation. Mm-hmm. Right. We do it from a cheerful heart. But I'll, I'll say this in all my years of working and, and writing tithe checks and, and giving back to church, I've never regretted it. Mm-hmm. And, and I've never even looked and said, oh, I wish I had that X amount of money back mm-hmm. because right. I need it. Like, um, but And I'll say this, for people, I don't think anybody in their life has ever looked back and said, I hate what generosity has done to me. Or I, yeah. I dislike what generosity has produced in me. Like, I, I, I don't, I can't think of any examples of that. And I can't imagine there really are because generosity makes us a better person. Generosity makes us more Christ-like. Generosity mm-hmm. produces contentment. It produces trust that we'll talk about in a second. And so ultimately we give, and because we give, God does some great things in our life through that generosity. Yeah, I remember like like growing up, and this is for any of our listeners who, who are raising kids 
or, or grandkids because that was my situation. But when I got my first job and my brother, we both worked at Lewis Jones there in Columbus. It was our first job. When mama was teaching us how to handle money, she always told tithe that like it wasn't it wasn't a choice for us. We we didn't get to choose whether we tithe. She told us, look, this you know one day you you'll get to make this decision. But right now you can't make this decision. I'm making it for you, so you're going to give. And so, but what I think she did is she um, she she was teaching us something. And so I think mm-hmm. you you know early on you teach your children to give to what God is doing. And she never told us why. Eventually, I figured out the why. The why I was giving, I figured that out. I figured it out as part of my worship. It took me a, a long time to figure that out. Um, I went, you know, through the whole stage of what's well, obligation. You know, I got to do this, and then it kind of grew from there, and it, it grew into man. This is this is just part of my worship with everything else I do. So I think it's one of those like I, I spoke uh, at church not long ago, and it's it's one of those things where. You know, you ask mom, why am I doing this? It's, well, right now it's because I said so. And that's not a bad thing early on because mm-hmm. she was teaching us to be in the habit of giving. And eventually the why caught up with the what we were doing. She, yeah. At first she was teaching us the what. And, and it's not um, that teaching method is not unlike Scripture because in the Old Testament there's so many um, types and shadows of Christ, but they in in uh, much of the um, Old Testament law was preparing the people um, for the the coming of Christ. It was kind of like in the Old Testament they were told exactly what to do, but less was expected out of them. And then in the New Testament they're told less about what to do, and then more is expected out of them. In verse nineteen, Paul. Um, in reference to the Philippians' generosity, which we find out again in 1 Corinthians was out of poverty, he said, and my God will supply all of your needs. And he hits kind of on that last tone of generosity that when we do give, it produces in us a trust that when I'm giving, I'm trusting that God will take care of me. Now, people twist that and they say, well, if you give $50, God will bless you with $500. And it it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it does. Um, sometimes God gives you back what you've given. Sometimes mm-hmm. he doesn't. Mm-hmm. But he supplies every need. When we give, we're saying, God, I trust you to take care of me. Even when we give what we, quote, unquote, don't have to give, or we give what mm-hmm. we're afraid to give. Um, and Paul is, is talking about this generosity that gets produced, I mean, this trust that's produced in us that God will meet our needs. Well, we found ourselves here at the end of the book of Philippians. I want to ask you guys, what is your final thoughts on the book of Philippians before we send it out this week? I have, just personally, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the study through Philippians because I, th- I think we've, and, and I do this maybe privately, but I mean, it's, it's better, I think, in a um, conversational style like this, is we've discussed uh, much of the culture of the time that it was written. And so we're able to see how the early church worked in a real world, not in a vacuum, you know, you know, kind of off to itself. And so we've kind of, hopefully for our listeners, we've kind of opened up some of those avenues of, of you know, this is how it worked, you know, kind of in in the culture it was in, and this is how it kind of works in the culture that, that we're in. We, we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist in the culture that God has placed us in. And I think it's, He's purposely uh, placed us in said culture. I think seeing Paul confront the things going on in the church during this time, I think that is really cool to see 
and call like calling out the things that need to be fixed and how they can fix it. And then a constant reminder throughout the scripture, you know, I can put my faith in Jesus in the midst of troubles and, you know, hard times and, and you know, telling them that and just this is a reminder when we read when I, when we went through it. I guess the thing I keep coming back to was uh, the phrase humble obedience. I think first and foremost, Jesus there in chapter 2, we look at his humble obedience, leaving behind the riches of heaven to come down to earth to minister to us, to give up his very life. We see it in Paul's life. We see it in Paphroditus. We see it in Timothy. And he's encouraging that there at the end uh, with the two women who were fighting. Uh, And then the need for one to be content with what we have and to continue to be generous. Again, just this idea of humble obedience. Much of the Christian life is difficult and hard. But a lot of perseverance comes from just simply doing what you have to do that day. Waking up each day, new mercies, new grace, and just trying to figure out how can I best serve the Lord today. And I think that's, to best summarize it, uh, what I keep coming back to. Rejoice, I will say it again, rejoice. And that's what sticks out to me about the book of Philippians. No matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, whatever's going on in our lives, we make the choice to rejoice and to trust in Christ and to be obedient to him, as Pastor Matt just said. This has been a fun season of the Wordsmith Podcast. We hope you guys have enjoyed listening as well. Uh, But the Wordsmith is not going away. We're excited to announce we will be having a season two, and we'll be announcing um, shortly what that season will be covering. But in the meantime, we have a Christmas episode that will be coming out on December the 22nd. That's the Tuesday before Christmas, so you guys don't have to wait too long before you get your next wordsmith podcast Um, make sure you subscribe and like us on all of the podcast platforms that way you know when the bonus content comes out that way you know when the next seasons come out we're going to have more bonus content as well that you guys will want to make sure that you find out about but no matter what it's our prayer that this conversation today and every week here as we work through the book of philippians and through the word of god it helps you to grow in your relationship with christ until next time this is your wordsmith team pastor josh Pastor Matt Calhoun, your boy Pastor Shane, and the kid Connor.